Yes, the word of the Lord is alive and it's sharp. And I know that you are part of this church because this church strives to be faithful to the word of the Lord. Uh, this church is not entertaining. I used to say you don't come here for the music because you used to have just one keyboard and but now it's growing so I cannot say that you don't come here because of the music but we know that you come here because Christ is your shepherd and you love to hear his voice otherwise there would be no other reason for you to be here So please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Right after Ephesians. Would you please stand? Starting verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing with one another. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Please be seated. The subject of obedience, being obedient, that's a very important subject. Not only in the Bible, but throughout our society. Many studies have been done about obedience. Uh, many studies. The importance of obedience in the home, obedience in society. It was interesting, in the early 70s, Stanley Milgram, a social psych- psychologist, he wrote a book entitled Obedience to Authority. And it was very creepy, all the, the, the tasks that he did. It, it, it's, it's pretty strange. But his argument is that obedience was humanity's fatal flaw. Obedience was implanted in people by the process of evolution. And there was a problem in this evolving of obedience. That was not good. On the other hand, Matt Little, he wrote a book called The Disobedient Society. And he argues in that book that we live in a time where obedience is considered a relic of the past. And how much that affects society. So, think about obedience, and especially us as Christians. That's a major theme through all the scriptures. I have here, the theme or motif of obedience runs throughout the Bible, and it's very crucial. It's because, as Paul says in Romans 5.19, For as by one's man, one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners since the first act of disobedience humanity is marked by disobedience that's all we call sin total depravity we are born from Adam and the mark of Adam was disobedience and we all are born in disobedience 
you think about the history of Israel, as you are tracing a biblical motif here of disobedience, the, the nation of Israel is marked by disobedience. So every time you have a, a summary of the nation of Israel, for example, in Nehemiah 9 or Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is giving a summary, you see that one of the main marks is their disobedience towards the Lord. They went into captivity and exile. Why? Disobedience. The hallmark of people under the wrath of God is disobedience. So Romans 1.30, 2 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.6. It's fascinating. The Word of God describes humanity outside Christ as sons of disobedience. And sadly... People come and they start professing to be Christians and they want to live a life of disobedience. So, so many people in churches today, they are marked not by obedience to Christ, but by disobedience to the clear commands of the scriptures. Pastors, starting with the leaders, disobedient to the word of God in preaching the, the, the word of God, disobedient to the Lord in not practicing church discipline, in not pastoring as they should, and then you have the congregation living in disobedience to the word of the Lord. Now obedience, on the other hand, is the mark of the one who loves God. When we obey Him, we show that we are under His Lordship and that we love His revelation. When you're obeying the Lord, that shows that we love Him as our Lord and Master and as the one who gives us His revelation. If Adam is the disobedient one, Jesus became what? The obedient one. As Paul says in Romans 5.19, if through one man's disobedience we became sinners, through one man's obedience we were made righteous. And that's Jesus Christ. And we saw Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient to the point of death even death on a cross so our salvation is grounded in his obedience so I would say that Jesus is not only the basis, the foundation and the object of our obedience we obey him but he's also the pattern and example of our obedience Ooh, we're supposed to obey like Christ yes we are supposed to obey like Christ. J.A. Packer, he says, The quality of Christ Jesus' obedience sets the standard by which Christians must measure theirs. In the Lord's Prayer, one of the petitions that Jesus teaches us to pray is, Your will be done, how? On earth as it is in heaven. How is the will of the Lord done in heaven? When the Lord says something, do you think the angels are lacking? The saints in heaven, how do you think they're obeying the Lord? In laziness? No, it's immediately. It's perfectly. And we here on earth, we are supposed to be obeying the will of the Lord. That's His will. Just like in heaven. And when we understand that one of the major metaphors for the church throughout the New Testament is the metaphor of an army, then you think how crucial and vital obedience is. You cannot conquer, you cannot win with an army of disobedient soldiers. Makes all the difference. You think about the history of Israel in the Old Testament and how their losses, when they lost battles, what was the reason? Disobedience to the Lord's commandment. So Paul and the Philippians, they know that they are in a spiritual battle. That's why the language of, of warfare has been overflowing in Philippians. And they know they're in a spiritual battle, therefore obedience is necessary. And we have an enemy outside, 
And we have an enemy inside ourselves. So my prayer is, as we are studying the book of Philippians, especially this passage here, that our love for Christ will increase, and therefore, as our love is increasing, what must increase with our love? Obedience. If you love me, what do you do? You obey me, you keep my commandments. So that's my prayer for us. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 18. And I just want to prepare the grounds here. We're going to spend maybe three Sundays on this portion of Scripture. And I always like to prepare the ground before we start threading upon here. So as we are coming to this verses 12 through 18... And I love our English Bibles, but sometimes the divisions that we have hinders us from seeing the passage in its context. But it's very important that when you come to verses 12 through 18, to understand and realize that's flowing from the preceding verses. Okay? That's not a new thought here. It's All that we have is woven tightly into the fabric of Paul's larger argument that he started in chapter 1, verse 27. Look in your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 27. That would be the beginning of a, a paragraph, a major uh, division here. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm. Remember the language of warfare, military background here. One spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith. So that's flowing from this thought here. And we are very prone, sadly, we are prone to come to these verses just like the preceding verses and do what? Forget the context. We move out of context. And we must fight this temptation with all our efforts. Keep the context in mind. And I know that some of you came this morning ready, ready for me to speak about how to connect the working now of salvation with the working of God. How can you call, is there Armenian passage, is there a Calvinistic passage? And we forget to, first of all, study the passage in its context. That's crucial. Also, it seems abrupt, right? We were in heaven. We were on the top of the mountain. Look at verses 5 or verses 6 through 11. And that's the beautiful, beautiful passage of Christ. Have this mind in, in you among yourself that was in Christ Jesus. And then he takes us through the story of Christ from his humiliation to his exaltation. And we were, finish verse 11, we were overwhelmed. Last Sunday, so many of you came to me and said, I was overwhelmed by that text, and so was I. Tears. The Trinity working together. No self-ambition in the Trinity. The Father throwing the spotlight in the Son. The Son throwing the spotlight on the Father and the Spirit. This beautiful unity showing true humility, what looks like. And then if you're expecting Paul just to write a doxology. Now to him be the glory forever. And just wrap up the letter. And actually Paul goes on to start meddling with our lives. Oh Paul, what are you doing? Now you're telling us after that majestic experience on the top of Mount Everest. Now you're coming to my household and tell me to stop grumbling and complaining. What's going on Paul? I really like what Dennis Johnson writes. He says, After such a mountaintop experience, Paul's practical coaching about how to respond to others' hostility seems like a disappointing descent into the smog of everyday life. Keep obeying. Don't grumble. Your neighbors are a crooked generation. I may be executed soon. And by the way, through it all, I'm rejoicing. You should too. What an odd assortment of mundane instructions. Yet, this passage is not as mundane or ordinary as it seems. 
In fact, Paul is building on the mountain peak of his doctrine of Christ, showing us in practical terms what it means to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Very important. Paul is developing, he's continuing his theme of unity through humility by having the mind of Christ. It's a continuation of this. And if you notice, Paul, he's applying something that he will do throughout the letter. Is that it's exhortation or instruction and example. That's the pattern that Paul is having. And he will continue. So we saw the exhortation, verse one, chapter 1, verse 27 through verse 5 of chapter 2 and then he gives the example of Christ comes exhortation followed by the example of Paul followed by exhortation followed by the example of Timothy that's what he's doing exhortation, instruction, an example he knows how we need examples good and bad examples we need and also you see how practical the massive doctrine of Christ is for the Christian life. Think about that. Paul just painted this beautiful picture of the Trinity and the humanity and the deity of Christ, the incarnation of Jesus. All these doctrines that are mind-boggling, hard to grasp, and yet they are very, very practical. You see, we have two extremes in the church today. We have one extreme is no doctrine. We don't need doctrine. Doctrine divides. Love unites. No, let, let, we, we don't need to study deep theological truths. Why? Why would you do that? Then on the other hand, especially in our circles, we have those who love studying. Deep theological truth. We need to study theology, doctrine. But this is for these people. Studying doctrine and theology is just like a, a, a biologist studying the reproduction pattern of the manatees in the jungles of Amazon. There is no practical application for their lives whatsoever. But they love the information. It's amazing. Their minds. But you see, the Bible is completely against these two types of extremes. The Bible is very clear. The theology, doctrine, deep doctrines are very important and very practical. That's what Paul is doing. He just gave us this massive, profound, weighty doctrine of Christ and doctrine of the Trinity. And that's why some scholars, they will argue, there is no way that Paul is giving these doctrines just to teach the church to stop being, div being divisive. Paul did not write such a, 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 an amazing and weighty document on the person of Christ just so people would stop grumbling in the church. As they say, you don't row a cannon to shoot a rabbit. But you see, that's a misunderstanding because for Paul, there is no deep theology that's not extremely practical. Paul understood all issues in the church to be theological. However practical they may have appeared, and so he addressed all issues theologically. Paul did not reserve theology for seminaries and clergy gatherings. It was the church theology, the church faith. And that's what Paul is doing. He's using the weighty doctrine of the Trinity, of the incarnation of Christ, to, to teach us very simple and practical lessons about how to preserve the unity in our church. How to start looking at the interests of others. How to stop grumbling about other people in the church. 
how to start placing other people above your own interest. That's what Paul is doing here. So, as you come to verses 12 through 18, please keep in mind the context. That's very important. There, there, there are a series of connections between the preceding text, the preceding verses, and this portion of the scripture. I don't have time to go through right now. I'll gladly send you my notes. Uh, so please keep in mind the context. That's not an, so. So so many people they come to this text, and the first thing they want to do is to argue: Who is working out the salvation? Why are you working out salvation? How can you work out salvation? What is what, what's up with God working in? What's up with God? Uh, he's the one who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And we forget the context that Paul is dealing with here. So let us not do that. Second, as we are preparing the soil here and as you are studying at home, the use of the Old Testament is impressive in these verses, verses 12 through 18. There is a vast amount of allusions and echoes coming from the Old Testament. And why is that important? It's important because for Paul, the Old Testament is actually what? Our, the Christian's story and history. That's very important. Paul is using all the Old Testament and amazingly he's applying all those promises and stories he's applying to a church that we have no idea if there were any Jews in that church in Philippi. And we often reject the Old Testament. Ah, the Old Testament. And yet, that's the scriptures that Paul is using as the foundation for his instruction, teaching. That's very important. We're going to talk more about that. But for me, it's just amazing that Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he calls himself, a Pharisee, is now instructing a Gentile church with the Hebrew scriptures. Assuming that they are now the true Israel of God. And it's the Old Testament background that will help us to better grasp this text here. So the outline is, is here. Uh, don't worry, we're not going to go through all the verses. We're just going to walk through verse 12 today. You see the call to obedience. Work out your salvation. So verse 12, you can see in your Bibles, it starts with, Therefore... And by now, I hope that every time you come to therefore, you know what? There's something preceding that's very important. Therefore, keep your eyes in the context. Therefore, Paul is now drawing a logical connection from the example of Christ to the exhortation to the Philippians. That's very important. And what is Paul dealing with in the preceding verses? What is the context? Unity through humility. Unity through humility. Unity through humility. Pattern after the Trinity. That's very important. Keep this in mind, brothers and sisters. That's what he's saying, starting verse 27, chapter 1. Striving side by side. Having one mind, one affection. So, I want to show you that I'm not the only crazy guy thinking that's, that's the whole emphasis here. So, I will quote one other scholar, Frank Thielman. He says, Paul now begins to apply the example of Christ's unselfish humility and obedience to the Philippian situation. His basic meaning is clear. He wants the Philippians to obey as Christ obeyed. And presumably, this means to work for unity by avoiding the kind of selfish ambition that leads to dissension, complaining, arguing. Very important. Therefore, connects us to the preceding verses. Especially us in the Reformed school, Reformed Church, we love to come to this text to do what? 
to show the sovereign of God and that he is the one who works in us so we can work out but before we go there we, we know that's truth God is always the first agent but before we go we need to study and understand what Paul is trying to tell us in the context of the letter also that therefore reminds us that Paul is using military language here the whole context is about war striving side by side and then he just talked about Christ being highly exalted given a name that's all military language remember last Lord's Day when a general won a war he would be highly exalted he would receive a new name Lord, knees bowing, tongues confession it's all military language and that's important to keep in mind because that's what Paul is developing here so that therefore you gotta always circle and put an arrow say alright I need to go back here and see what Paul means by that so he says therefore and that's beautiful that's just I spent hours here I'm not kidding I thought about stopping and just doing just this word my beloved therefore my beloved that's shocking that's amazing that's beautiful very affectionate expression and we know that Paul has already been showing his affection towards them look in chapter 1 look at chapter 1 verse 8 Paul says, for God is my witness. He calls the Lord into the tribunal and to judge him. God is my witness. How I yearn, how I long for you all with what? The affections, with the intestines, the inner parts of Christ Jesus and this is my prayer you see his affection is manifested also in the way that he prays for them I love you so much and this love is manifesting my prayer that your love will also abound more and more and we know that's one of Paul's favorite expressions to call brothers and sisters in Christ his beloved the one whom his soul loves and how we need this type of affection in the church today a type of affection towards church members that's lacking in our church sadly so many people come to church and they don't see the members of the body as beloved ones they have no love sacrificial love for the members of the church what is a beloved one? one whom you love you are my beloved I love you I love you so many people come to church no longer with this idea of these are my beloved people instead it's how can I use these people for my own so many people you can just smell they come to church and pretty soon they're trying to use people in the church for their own gains political, financial, personal reasons how we need to look at the members of our church as beloved ones my beloved Gerald Hawthorne he says referring to this this is a favorite adjective of Paul's by which he means to say you are a people especially loved by God but also by me to be called beloved is an unimaginable incomprehensible and inconceivable privilege and I know that you might not believe that because you grew up in a society that you are so lovely everybody tells you how lovely you are how awesome you are how good you are how much you deserve from society how much people are owing you that's how we that's how we are bombarded every day how much people owe us everybody owe us because I'm so good I'm so loving I'm so lovely how can you not love me 
and DC. That's the completely opposite of the Word of God. The Bible says that by nature we are what? Children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2. By nature, children of wrath. Objects of God's holy wrath and punishment. That's who we are by nature. But because of Jesus, the beloved one, we who by faith embrace Christ become what? Beloved in Christ. The awe and amazement becomes when you start studying through all these scriptures this theme of beloved. The first reference to the beloved is in Genesis chapter 22. And in the Greek version we have agapetos, the beloved. It's when the Lord calls Abraham to sacrifice his only son, his what? His beloved son. And do you remember what happens? The Lord says, stop, because it's not your beloved son who will die. It's my beloved son. But there you see the seed of Abraham being called beloved. And that's a title that's applied to Israel, the nation of Israel. They're called the beloved of God. Psalm 60 verse 5. Psalm 108 verse 6. Jeremiah 11 verse 15. And then you think about the greatest king of Israel. His name was David. And David means what? Beloved. The beloved. Of course, he was pointing, he was pointing, he was a type of the greater David, the greater beloved who was to come. And when Jesus is coronated in his baptism, do you remember the voice from heaven? The voice from heaven, the Father says, this is my what? My beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And now turn with me to Ephesians. It's right before Philippians, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, starting verse 5. Or verse 4. He says, In love, in love... He predestined us for he predestined us for adoptions for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us where in the beloved in the beloved we become the beloved of God because of the beloved Christ. Look at chapter 5 of Ephesians. Verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as what? Beloved children. God loves you. He remade you. He gave you a new birth. Now you are His children through Jesus Christ, the Beloved One. Now, as beloved children, you got to imitate your Father. In Titus, chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says that before the goodness and the loving kindness of the Lord appear in our lives... Do you know what we are doing? Being hated and hating each other. So true. So true. So by calling the Philippians his beloved ones, Paul is implied that he loves them. He loves them with a sacrificial love. And that's why he says in verse 17 that he might die. He might be poured out as a drink offering. Why? Because of his love for the church. Isn't that amazing, the power of the gospel? Think about the power of the gospel. Think about Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He hated Gentiles and he hated Christians. He hated Christians so bad that he was champion in persecuting the church. 
He hated Gentiles. And here what happens. When Jesus Christ through His gospel comes and He takes over our heart and He conquers our heart and He changes our heart. Now you see this man who used to hate these people. Now he sees them as the only object of his affection. He doesn't call the pagan philosophers my beloved in Athens. But the church of Christ is his beloved. His heart is there. Paul had not only a big and brilliant mind, but also a big and large heart. And I know a lot of people, they have a massive mind. A gigantic head. But the heart the size of a nail. A short nail. By calling them beloved, Paul is also reminding them that they are to see each other as their beloved ones. That's beautiful. You are my beloved because we are in the beloved. We are beloved children of God. Therefore, each one of you must be looking at each other as beloved ones. Beloved. To look at each other as one whom they love with the sacrificial love of Christ. A love that's not arrogant. A love that's not rude. A love that does not insist on its own way. A love that bears all things. A love that believes all things. A love that hopes all things. And a love that endures all things. So my prayer is that we will continue. The Lord will be gracious to us and continue enabling us, empowering us to look at each other as beloved in this church. My beloved, whom my soul loves. I love Jesse, you are my beloved. I love you. And I hope that we have this in this church where we look at each other. Sam, David, Joseph, Susan. My beloved, my soul loves you. I miss you when you're not here. I think about you. I pray for you. How can I help you? How can I serve you? And many times, we do things that we're not feeling like doing, but we do out of love. Right? So many times there are things I don't feel like doing, but I have to do as a father, as a husband, and as a pastor. There is an aspect of love that constrains us to do even things that we are not feeling like doing. So, only then, when we see each other as beloved ones in Christ, we will be able to preserve the unity that the beloved bought with His precious blood. Also, as he talks, uh, he calls, uh, he's, he is calling them beloved. He reminds us that Paul is talking to believers here. That's very important. Paul is talking to Christians. If you are not a Christian, you are not a beloved of God. You are outside Christ. And today is the day that the Lord is calling you to repent of your sins and embrace the beloved and become a beloved child of God. So that's very important. Paul is not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to the church. Therefore, all his exhortations are for Christians. That's very important. Paul is not talking to non-Christians. Hey, work out your salvation. He's talking to Christians who are already saved. Very important to keep this in mind. Also, look at what Paul says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, there is this affection in his words there is the, the thing that Paul is doing is, is pointing evidence of grace in their lives. There is the affection of calling them beloved and then pointing to signs of grace in, in, in their lives. That's very important. Before the exhortation. Because he's going to come and give an exhortation. But before the exhortation, he's showing his affection. His commendation of these people. And so often, we are quick to do what? To criticize, to complain, to exhort, to rebuke, without doing what first? Building up, showing our affection, showing our love. 
oftentimes I would like to say always but it's not always but the great majority of the time when you're about to spank one of the little ones we tell them we are doing that because we love you we love you very much we love Christ more but we love you very much and that's why we are disciplining you we are spanking you because we love you and sometimes you gotta hold if the affection is not there you should not be doing anything out of anger the same in the church if there is not a bridge of affection if our hearts not filled with affection towards each other let us shut up and not say anything because it's very easy for us to be quick to tell how it's supposed to be done we forget that this must be flowing out of affection and love profound care so he says therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed you see the proof that they are beloved is their obedience that's fascinating Paul must call them beloved because they have proven themselves to be children of God by obeying God it was Jesus who said in John chapter 14 John 14 21 whoever has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me he who has my commandments and obeys them he it is who loves me earlier Jesus said in the same chapter of John if you love me you keep my commandments you obey me so they see beloved and they have always obeyed always obeyed obedience is the fruit and sign of love we live in a time where people think that obedience to God somehow annuls grace if you're striving to be obedient to God somehow that's annulling grace too much obedience here <laughs> too much obedience <laughs> to the word of the Lord too much obedience to the Lord <laughs> I thought that a slave should be always obeying his Lord and Master. The fruit and demonstration of our union with Jesus is not the fact that one day you accepted an altar call, that you are baptized, or that you go to church. The fruit that you belong to Jesus is a life of obedience to Christ. That's very simple how do I know if that person is saved the Bible tells us is he obedient to the Lord I don't know sometimes people think that's just this gigantic mathematic equation that no one can solve there are people who live a life of disobedience to Christ oh I don't know if he's a Christian or not if we apply this method we can never have church discipline in the church if you are in union with Jesus the obedient one you must live a life of obedience I love what Sinclair Ferguson says he says for the apostle for a professing Christian to live in persistent and habitual disobedience was not merely a sign of immaturity it was an absurdity for how can those who belong to the obedient Savior sit lightly to obedience themselves it's unthinkable the inner logic of the gospel makes it impossible for a true Christian to live as though he were worldly and as I said, that's very important. Because we live in a time where so many people profess to be Christians and yet they live a life of disobedience. So many people profess to be Christians and then you ask, what church do you go to? What church are you part of? I don't have a church. I don't need a church. So how are you fulfilling the New Testament commandments that's given the context of a local church? The Bible says, obey your leaders. Who are your leaders? Ah, don't come with that.
That's very important. Also, the word obedience here connects us to verse 8. And you can see in your Bible. Here's the same Greek word here. Hupakuo, hupekuos in verse 8. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Therefore, therefore, since Christ Jesus was perfectly obedient, therefore you follow his pattern of obedience. Continue being obedient just like Christ. And look how he says, Therefore, my beloved, let me see if I have here, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, that's beautiful. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my what? absence. Unconditional obedience. Unconditional obedience. It doesn't matter who is watching you. Your life must be marked by obedience to the Lord. Paul is a loving pastor, he's a very loving pastor, and he knows that he might not be able to come back to that church. Verse 17 tells us, once again, I might be poured out as a drinking offering, I might die soon. And he knows, he does not want a cult, he wants a church. A cult is the one that you're always focusing on the human leaders. A church is the one that you respect, submit, obey, under the authority of Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul is doing. I might not come back to you. I love you. I planted this church. You guys came into existence as Christians because of my labor there. There is a mutual love, but let me tell you, I might not come back to you. And it doesn't matter. You don't owe obedience to me. You owe obedience to Jesus. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. The military language is overflowing here. He's calling them to obedience. The word was used for armies hearing the commanding of the officer, the general, and submitting and obeying. That's what Paul is calling here. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful when Christians live every hour of their lives knowing that God is always with them. When Christians are aware that maybe there is no human eyes watching you, but that the Holy Spirit of God is within you. So the words of Paul, I think, are very applicable here when he's talking to his slaves in that culture where there are slaves in the church. And Paul says, he's speaking to these slaves, and I think we can apply that to our spiritual slavery to Christ. He says, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And that's why I believe that the fearing trembling that Paul uses in the Greek is ambiguous in, in chapter 2 of Philippians. We, we often think it's work your salvation with fear trembling, but actually the fear trembling could be applied as to the obedience. As you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but much more with my absence, with fear and trembling. Speaking of, because Paul often uses obedience with fear. And I think here is very important how Paul speaks. And as we apply to us as slaves of Christ, we should be working, serving, obeying the Lord. Not only when people are looking at us, but much more when people are not watching us. I remember Spurgeon telling this story about a, a young servant, uh, this, this girl, she went forth and she said that the evidence that Christ had saved her is that now she was sweeping under the carpet, removing things from under the carpet and from behind the door, things that she didn't do before because she knew that nobody would be checking there. And it makes sense for the little kids, the young ones, we were talking about that last night. How do you behave when daddy and mommy are not around? And that applies to us. What movies 
Would you not watch if a Christian whom you respect was sitting by your side? Huh? What movies would you not watch if a Christian whom you respect was sitting by your side? What type of words would you not say to your family members if a godly person was watching you? Which idols that you serve in the intimacy of your life, when nobody's around, you'd not serve if a Christian whom you respect was standing by you? How much more would you give if when you were getting your check ready or your cash ready, a Christian whom you respect was standing by you? Paul was standing there. Oh, is it a sacrificial giving, brother? In light of all that you have been doing this week? Is that generous? So the way we speak and treat our spouse and our children in the private of our home cannot be different from the way we do or treat them when Christians are around. The movies we watch, the things we place before our eyes, our ears, cannot be different from when we are alone and when people are around us. Amen. A holy and obedient life is developed when no human eyes are watching you. And the same for the church. The same for the church. An obedient church is the one who is striving to be faithful and obedient even when the eyes of the media, the Christian media, are not over us. We don't have the eyes of together for the gospel, the gospel coalition, desiring God, grace to you, watching us. Still, we must be faithful and obedient to the Lord. Or how about when the leaders are not present? The church must remain faithful, obedient to the Lord. And now Paul says, and we're going to be quick here, look at what he says. And now is the nature of the obedience, how disobedience should be manifest in their lives. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. And here comes the imperative. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So the obedience that Paul requires from them is manifested through the working out of their salvation by living lives marked by the lack of grumbling and arguing. We need to read this text in context. We come to this text and we often think about how... How is that related to the doctrine of salvation? And that's fine. We should deal with that. But first of all, you've got to remember and understand one thing. Sometimes it's hard for us because of the English language. Because you read your salvation. And because we are a self-centered people, we think, why? Well, it's in the singular form. Right? Your salvation. Singular. No. It's in the plural. He's talking to a church. You all working together out your salvation. So instead of us thinking, how am I to work my own salvation? We should be thinking, how are we to work our own salvation? Huh. I never thought about that. See, we come and they're always expecting me, me. And the Bible is we, we. It's a people. A church. Many people come to this text and they will say that Paul is contradicting himself. So many liberal theologians will say that, of course, Paul could not be inspired by God because he's actually contradicting himself. Because in Romans 4, 5, Paul says that the one who works is not the one who is justified. Actually, God justifies the one who doesn't work. And I say, Amen. Amen. 
Because Paul is talking about justification. Justification. And though justification and salvation are all part of our redemption, they are different. Justification is a one time, one single event. Paul never talks about work out for your justification. Work out your justification. No. Justification is always, when you remember, it's a, a, a judicial tribunal concept. It's of a declaration you are righteous. And it's done. Just like regeneration. Regeneration is a one-time event. You are not being regenerated continually. God gave you a new heart. But salvation, on the other hand, we see throughout the scriptures as a process that God is saving us. He's delivering us. Saving us from ourselves and conforming us to the image of Christ. That's very important. So in Romans chapter 5, I invite you to open there, Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Romans 5 verse 9 Paul says Since therefore we have now been justified Important to know Aroist That's the past tense Passive It's done We were justified by his blood much more shall we be saved future tense future passive huh. justified in the past we'll be saved in the future a process that God is that's why we, we don't lose salvation because we don't lose justification they are connected that's very important Second, Paul is talking to Christians, people who already have salvation, your own salvation, already belong to them. Paul is not talking to, a, a, to people who work out for your salvation. No. Do you remember the Philippian jailer when he realizes his sinfulness and the glory of Christ and he asks Paul what must I do to be saved what does Paul say work out your salvation is that what Paul says repent and believe in Jesus Christ but I think the key to understand this text is to look at the word to work out there there is a prefix kata and then you have the main verb ergo and then you have a suffix zomai kater zomai ergo from work this word was used often in military context for battles and fights in Ephesians 6.13 Paul used the same word and you can turn there it's right before Ephesians chapter 6 and Paul is talking in the context of the armor of Christ, the spiritual warfare that we have, military language. Look at verse 13. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And then he used the same Greek word here. Most translations have, in having done all... And the picture is of fighting, putting all your efforts in this battle, because you know that the victory is yours. Even though the victory is ours, there are battles to fight. That's how it is. Is the victory ours? Amen. Through Christ Jesus. Yeah, do we have battles to fight? Yes. And how do we fight these battles? With all our energy, with all our strength. 
And Paul knows, the church knows that they have enemies to fight. And the greatest enemy that they're facing right now, that church, is the enemy within. Selfishness. So Paul used this military language in the context of unity for them to strive, to fight. The salvation is theirs. But as, as we are waiting for the consummation, there are battles and we must keep fighting. And that's why in verse 13, uh, I will talk about the next Lord's Day, he brings the theology of the Old Testament. That Israel won the wars because God was with them. They conquered the battles because Yahweh was with them. That's why they would bring the ark during their battles. That's why God, Paul says, For God is the one who is working in you, among you, both to will and to fight for His own good pleasure. So there is a lot here. But I think this verse 12, we'll talk more about next Lord's Day as we continue walking through here. But just verse 12, as we finish here, I would like us to go home and think about four words in verse 12. Four words that should drag us to our knees and cause us to worship Him and thank Him and praise Him. Beloved, obedience, and then working out salvation. You can put the two together. So three major expressions here. Beloved, obedience, and working out your salvation. That's the power of the gospel, brothers and sisters. And I know, I have seen your lives... How much the Lord is working in your life and how much you are loving more and more people in this church. There are people in this church, I know, you never served anybody before. You're extremely selfish, self-centered. And now because of the gospel, you love serving people because you love them. That's what the gospel does. Beloved. Before we were children of wrath, but because of the beloved one, Jesus Christ, we are loved by God, loved by God's people, and empowered to love God, and empowered to love other people. Beloved, obedience. Before the gospel came, we were children of disobedience, just like the rest, disobeying the Lord. But because of Jesus Christ, the obedient one, we now obey the Lord with joy, with gratitude. It's no longer a burden. I remember seeing Christians before I got saved. And I think, how annoying it is to go to church on Sunday. Especially in Brazil, was during the most churches have the service in the evening, and that's when you have the soccer games. I can't, I can't believe you're going to church instead of watching a soccer game. Burdensome. To obey the Lord, to be with God's people, serve those weird people. And when the gospel comes and changes our hearts and unites us with the obedient one, we now love to obey the Lord. And then the fighting or uh, working out for our salvation. Before the gospel, the only thing we could do was work out our damnation. Right? Am I wrong? And now because of the gospel, that's beautiful. We are called now to exercise, to fight with other people for the salvation that the Lord has given us. That's a beautiful thing. I join my arms now with Daniel, with Debbie, and I'm fighting with them for our salvation. Together. And I'm thinking about Nestor's salvation. How am I helping him? That's the power of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for your word.
that is truly sharper than any sword that we can ever imagine. So please continue to pierce our hearts. Continue to change us. Continue to transform us. Continue rescuing us, saving us from ourselves, from the sins that often come and and try to manifest themselves in our lives, Lord. I pray that you'd continue to humble us. Thank you for your love towards us. Thank you that in Christ we are beloved. And we can love one another with the love of Christ. Thank for obedient hearts. That was the promise of the new covenant. They would give us a new heart to obey your commandments. We praise you and thank you that we have the ability and the privilege of helping each other in working out, striving for our salvation, caring for the salvation of each other, helping each other. Thank you so much, Lord. Delivering us from hell, placing us with you. And Lord, for those who do not belong to you, those who have not embraced Jesus, those who have not said Amen to Christ, I pray that today would be the day that they would run to Christ, embrace Jesus. There is no better place to be than in the arms of the Lord. So we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.